welcome to the Production Talk podcast with me, Jan of MixArtist.com.au. In this podcast series, we celebrate the modern way of producing music. We want to talk about all things related to songwriting, recording at home and music production. So if you produce your music at home, this is the place to be. Please subscribe and recommend this podcast to all your friends. This is the Production Talk podcast, episode 49. Welcome back to another episode of the Production Talk podcast. At the beginning of the episode, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the country that I'm recording this interview on today, the Arakwal people of the proud Banjalong Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. And I'd also like to state that I just recently listened to the statement from the heart for the 20th time or so, and I just warmly recommend everybody to tune into this if you haven't had a chance to do so yet. So with me today is Mr. Paulie B. Thank you so much for meeting me online. How are you today? Greetings, my friend. I'm doing very well up here in Kapi Kapi country on the Sunshine Coast. It really looks uh, like you've got a comfortable space there in your studio. You look very cozy behind your console. <laughs> yeah, we make headphones a, on. Make a great effort to uh, keep it comfortable because we spend a lot of time mm. here. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Well, I really appreciate that uh, that I can speak to you today. So uh, maybe let's get started. And would you mind to introduce yourself to the people who may not know you yet and talk about yourself and your musical history, please? Hello friends, new and old. My name is Paulie B. I have been a professional musician and a bass player for uh, most of my career. I grew up in um, Brisbane around West End region and I played a lot of heavy metal and punk and um, yeah, sort of morphed into more dub and reggae and yeah, I've toured um, extensively for the last 25 or 30 years with bands like Pangea, George, The Beautiful Girls, and now I play with my good friend Bobby Alu. Mm. Um, yeah, and I've been running um, recordings almost the entire time. When I finished high school, I went to the SAE Institute in Brisbane Back then when um, I don't think they even had a computer in the office, you know, they had, <laughs> they had uh, old telephones and electric typewriters and uh, yeah. the most advanced piece of tech in the studio, apart from all the beautiful analog gear, was a cassette four track with um, like MIDI Oh, memory wow. or something yeah and i i hated it <laughs> so yeah i studied uh, i st i left school and mm. studied audio engineering and have mm. been making recordings alongside touring ever since just give me a rough idea what year would that have been approximately that would have been like well, i finished high school in 91 and mm. um about two years later was at sae for 18 yeah, so months early to mid you know, 90s well that would have been a good time so yes probably analog was, tape i guess it was all analog tape on 16 mm. track um studer machine oh no it was yeah tascam desk in a studer machine yep and uh my two lecturers at the sae were called mike and mike which was pretty funny <laughs> <laughs> nice two mics running the course about mics <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, um, but nice. th that was actually a really foundational time for me as a member of the Brisbane musical community because I had a very small class back then. SAE was relatively unknown. And I think there was about 12 or 14 people in my class. And um, I still see most of the people from that class. And, um, it, it, and there was... There was a period about four or five years later where it felt like that little nucleus of people had gone into the Brisbane music scene and started changing the world. You know, Quan from Regurgitator was in my in my class. Oh, cool. um, Shane Dowsett from Bulldozer was in my class. Darren Middleton from Powderfinger was um, – he wasn't in my class, but I saw him at SAE the whole time. Kelly from Screamfeeder was around. Um, 
Lazy Gray, the rapper from the Resin Dogs, was in my class. Oh, I um, love the Resin Dogs. Uh, Brad yeah. Winton from um, Bowser was in my class. Tyson Royale, who I think is Lana Del Rey's tour manager, was in my class. Paul Bardini, one of the main monitor and sound engineers around Brisbane, was in my class. And it was just like all of these people Whoa. stuck with it. And um, we all knew yeah, each right. other. So, yeah, that was a, it was a strong Good little intake. group. Yeah, yeah fantastic. Mm. <laughs> Say, did they teach you to, you know, edit uh, um, audio on, on analog tape with razor blades? And, yeah, we, uh, we used to get the knives out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, gee. <laughs> But uh, not too. many people did it, mm. to be honest. It, uh, I think mm. the lesson there more was to cope with your own humanity and mm. learn to love your mistakes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all right. Oh, yeah. that goes really deep, yeah. Mm. Look, so that means you would have been basically at the transition point when studios moved from the analog domain into the digital domain. Mm, that's right. That was probably an exciting time where uh, not Look, everything it, was good immediately, but uh, what, what is your take on that? Do you still follow analog workflows? I follow a very analog headspace wherever possible. So... The thing that I loved about the analog workflow really was what I just hinted on and that um, you have to be very prepared to place your part onto the tape as a musician mm. or as an engineer. You know, you take, you take time getting the sound right before you print it to tape. You take time getting your part organized as a player and the yeah. arrangement, it's a, it's a bit more solid because... Like, for example, if you're about to add the guitar solo to the, to the song, there's probably only one channel of tape, one track of the tape where you can put the guitar solo. So you'll do a solo and then you'll listen back to it. And then you're like, well, maybe I'll have another go. And the engineer says, well, we're going to tape over that one. You know, it's a destructive process and there's yeah. this forward momentum in it that makes you figure out what you're made of. And then you just ask yourself, have I peaked? And am I okay mm. with what I did or do I think I'm still going up and can I do better? Because there's no going back. And I really love that headspace when making records. And now in the digital domain where we are able to edit and choose from different performances, it is an amazing tool, but I still encourage all the artists that I work with to try and pull it off in one go. Like really mm. just try and create a magic moment and let's catch it. So, yeah, it's, uh, I would say philosophically that really shaped the way that I approach making records okay. as an artist and a, as a musician more so than um, from a technical standpoint. So when you say magical moment, you know, um, is that something that you just feel or can you describe what that means to you in words? You know, if, if it, does that mean it's, it's a musically perfect take? Uh, no, definitely not musically perfect. Mm. I would say um, intentionally perfect. I think it's different for oh, everybody. Yeah. Please expand um, on that. I'm super yeah, curious. I, I think that that experience of a perfect moment is completely unique to everybody, which is why music is art, is subjective. So this is a beautiful thing to remember. But to me, I could liken it to it's a state of meditation perhaps. You know, when you feel... Um, an, an inpouring of energy to your being from another source and you're just a vessel that is creating vibrational content as a singer or a player. And when I, th I think what it feels like to me is when the energy takes over and you lose track of time. So if you forget what you're doing, that's a magical moment. Like if you're, mm. if you're playing a song and you lose track of your ego in that moment and you actually just become part of the vibration of the song, that is, they're the moments that I'm always looking for in the recording. And maybe you got the phrasing wrong or you forgot a word or your pitch wasn't perfect, but, you know, if that force comes through strong like that, that's the kind of stuff I want to capture. That's the sort of stuff that I think comes out of the speakers really good. Wow. Well, well, I've asked this question many times and I've never heard such a good answer that I resonate with so much. I've never found such good words myself trying to describe that thing. Well, wow. so thank you, you obviously brother. have experienced that, I believe, you know, I remember through yourself or through others. I remember experiencing it first yeah. as a 
you know, 15-year-old guitar player on my nylon string in my bedroom and I would just be playing and then I'd just sort of realise that I was still playing and I couldn't remember how long was I playing for. And But the the experience of resonating with the instrument lulled me into a meditative state and I think that is the state. Like that's the place where the most beautiful performance comes from. So the other thing that I believe, which is pretty, um, <laughs> it spins me out even when I think about it, but so we live in a vibrational universe, right? We all know that. That's a fact. Everything's vibrating. All the atoms are vibrating. All, so when you think about a microphone in a studio, all it does is sit around listening for vibrations. That's true, yeah. And many of us believe that mood, intention, and emotion are also vibrational. So why is it why isn't it likely that the microphone is hearing these things as well and they're getting picked up on whatever micro level that they're getting picked up captured and translated back into the speakers of the listener that's hearing the recording so I believe that your headspace and your intention can be part of the recording that can be translated to others I truly believe mm. this wow okay and mm. you must have experienced this often enough to to have this belief. So, well, I've I've seen I've seen vocalists in my recording studio recording a sad song with tears rolling down their cheeks, and it's almost impossible to listen to the recording without experiencing that emotion. It's it, mm. I guess you know it's like method acting, or a director would push a, an actor on film to be fully actually experiencing what they want the character to replicate on film. And yeah, that's a similar kind of thing. You know, you want to mm. you want to create the correct emotional vibration for yep. the art that you're trying to make. So yeah, that, that's wow. yeah, that's just something that I I'm always on the lookout for. Okay. Mm. So if I was a musician booking your studio, I would probably just come from a busy day of work, dealing mm. with my family, being a bit stressed out, maybe a bit late. I'm in your studio, I'm ready to go, and I know the time's ticking, everything costs money. And that's the kind of mindset where something like this can possibly happen. Wouldn't you agree? How, how, do, you, how do you guide people who are under stress? That's a normal state for lots of people nowadays. How do you guide them to a place where they can perform like that? Mm, tell them they're beautiful. <laughs> but well, mean it, you know, like see the beauty okay. in them and just remind them that uh, they, they have something for this moment. And I also... Um, Treat like time is quite flexible in the studio, and um, yeah. uh, I like to have a conversation with people before we begin, so that we mm. get connected and we start, you know, feeling um, like we're in the same space together as two yeah. people. And um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I just I spend a lot of time working on the um, the headspace of the recording. More, you know, to me, that's more important than which mic you put where. That stuff all helps, but uh, uh, yeah, I really love the the psychological element of working with artists and and um, helping them be ready to do something beautiful. Wow. Okay. You make it sound so easy, but uh, I know it's so not. So I'd like to uh, dig a little bit deeper there. Mm. Have you have you been in a situation where you struggled cutting through to somebody where somebody was so under pressure? Mm, of course, yeah. In the definitely. wrong headspace? It definitely happens. Um, for mm. me, I think my experience with it has more so been when you're working with a group of people and they have their own dynamic and they're triggering each other like an old married couple, you know, the weird politics and interpersonal stuff that goes on in, <laughs> in bands yeah. and all that power play. Like that's quite hard to come up against as a producer. Yeah. But I usually oh, yeah. find if I can get myself one-on-one -on -one with the person who is about to record, then straight away we, um, we can start to focus together. Mm. Okay. So, so that's part of it for me is telling everyone else to piss off. It's yeah, like, oh, give us the room. Say, so. Because, yeah. you know, like we're all fragile. Mm. We're all um, psychologically fragile beings and we all have vulnerabilities and we're all aware of ourselves. And particularly we all want to do well. And we are in high-pressure environments where, you know, you're in a band and you're there with your friends and we're all spending money together to try and pull this off. Mm. But 
Um, one thing, yeah, I just have a few, they're not really rules, they're just kind of light guidelines for psychological well-being that I have in my studio and it's that um, whoever's about to perform gets to do three takes uninterrupted before anyone's allowed to tell them anything about what they think or how they want it to be because once an artist has captured what they thought was possible for themselves or, or anybody, then we're, then we're open to feedback then we feel like we've done what we wanted to do and if somebody would like to hear a different lyric or try another melody or use a few different chords, then you're like, well, it's risk-free because I've done what I came to do, so I'm absolutely open to trying that concept. Whereas if old mate's halfway through his guitar take and they're like, no, 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 do different chords, do different chords, why are you playing that guitar? And the rest of the band start criticising him, that, that person's vulnerability just skyrockets you know and it's really Mm, hard to get them to do anything um that they're gonna value after that so yeah these are just um okay group dynamic strategies that um yeah we use a lot to protect people in this vulnerable space and help them to find what they're looking for wow you're super experienced in that that's that's Hmm. so Eye-opening for me. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. And I grew up in punk rock, you know, so I'm all about like um, DIY and fanzines and, you know, like the system or whatever. But I, I think that translates well in the studio because we really just have to get it done however we can get it done by any means necessary and there's no mm. right or wrong way. And I'm so much more interested in the memories that the artists have of making the recording then which mic I put where or what did yeah. I run it through? And, you know, like if they if they have a good muscle memory about the experience, then they're going to listen to it with joy. And if it was stressful, they're never going to want to hear it again. Mm, that's so true. Well, I've been okay. there. I've done that. You know, I've had mm. really stressful sessions as an artist and I didn't want to listen to it because I didn't like the process. <laughs> well, and of course, if you're stressed, you probably don't perform as well as you would under, under better circumstances. Yeah, sometimes so the pressure's good. So we're mm. always dancing on that fine line between pushing yourself and getting out of your comfort zone to do something maybe better than you thought you could do. But also, yeah, that that sort of that doesn't come easy for most people and it's certainly not the first thing to look for. The first thing to look for is um, what, you know, that, that person had decided they wanted to do when they came here. Mm. And then we start throwing around all the crazy ideas. <laughs> yeah. Okay. In your words or in your eyes, what are what are the benefits and the disadvantages of working on the click? Mm. What is your take on that? That's a good question. And um, most people think they have to because it's one of those studio things where they're like, oh, we need to do it on the click track. So um, the advantages are from... A post-production point of view, many things become possible. If you have done a, you know, for live bands dropping takes and the drummers on the click, then um, you can interchange sections. Just say um, the bass player really liked the first chorus that they played, but they didn't really like the second chorus. In a lot of cases, you can you can drop the first chorus into the second chorus and repeat sections mm-hmm. and. Even though the, you know, I, I'm I'm still cautious of that because the feel will be misaligned. You know that bass wasn't performed with those drums, and those drums haven't been quantized necessarily. They're just mm. guided by the click, so they may not lock in. Advantages are post production. There's a lot you mm. can do to tighten everything up. Um, you can save a bit of time by if you're putting shakers or tambourine into the track. You don't necessarily have to do the whole performance. Um, so. Uh, you can also share um, the stems of the recording for remixes. Um, it helps a lot if they've been performed at tempo. Um, so that's that's a really cool thing about it. Um, some genres of music also benefit greatly from that feeling of restraint and not speeding up, like mm. slow dub or um, you know deep reggae. And I found that. Um, 
a really consistent tempo in a deep reggae jam is as important as playing the right chords. If the tempo changes, the mood changes, especially mm. for the listener. Yes. And yeah. so, yeah, a lot of reggae that I've made has been on the click because it, it helps everybody stay slow. It helps the band just stay settled and the pocket gets really deep. Yeah. Um, I've really explored a lot of ways of working with the click um, and one of the most interesting things that I found, I didn't invent it, but I, I realized it and I made a lot of records this way. Anybody who's listened to, um, any of the albums that I've made, um, particularly from the Tanuki Lounge in Brisbane, I definitely think of the, the first Kingfisher record was probably one of the first that I really dove into this technique with. I also used it with uh, Ducky Roots and some other fantastic Brisbane reggae artists from that time. Was It wasn't live tracking sessions, so we were really producing the record and um, drums went down last. So, Oh, really? Yeah. So I was inspired by – I heard a story – of um, Marley and the Whalers, Chris Blackwell tracking um, Waiting in Vain, one of my favourite Marley mm. grooves, one of my favourite bass lines. And as the story goes, I don't know if it's verified or not, but anyway, it inspired me to think about process, which, you know, that's all we need, just a bit of inspo, true or false. Apparently... Carlton, the drummer, was sick on the day that they, they they record a song a day in their studio process and he was unwell that day. So they printed a drum loop onto the tape machine and then the band recorded all of their parts to the drum loop and then the next day when he was in the studio, he just added the drums to two songs instead of one. And that got me thinking that if I was a drummer laying songs with my band in the studio, how awesome it would be if they weren't all speeding up and slowing down and fighting the tempo and feel with each other, moving through the changes. So I started making records that way where I'd quickly um, use, I was actually using Boom, the free onboard Pro Tools drum machine, to just map out the groove and the tempo of the song. And then all of the band members would overdub their parts to that perfectly consistent, super mellow drum loop, then um, any edits that you do, you know, they're, they're really on time and everything just fits together so good. And then before you even add drums to the song, you listen to everything without any drums and it is so consistent and heavy and beautiful. And then the drummers don't even need to click track. They just put the headphones mm. on and they play into a finished song and they play so well and they play gently um, or they, they can feel the dynamics of the song and they're playing into the finished production instead of, which is what I was experiencing beforehand. They felt like they had to hold up the whole arrangement because they're like the first person playing. So they had to outline everything and a lot of pressure was on them and they were overplaying because the track was empty, you know. So mm, mm. Um, for, for us, it really allowed us to play with post-production on the drums as well. And for me, some of the, the main revelations were how few drum mics I needed to get the drums sounding the way we wanted them in the production. Sometimes there's three mics, sometimes there's two, a kick and an overhead, and you're like, man, it's all it needs. Whereas when you start off, you're like, I better record all 14 lines just in case. And, you know, once they're there, it's pretty hard to not use them. So, yeah, all of those <laughs> things were really, they were all advantageous um, click relationship stuff for us. You know, all of that stuff was okay. because of the click. And, yeah, many, many great things have happened um, using the click um, in my production life. Are there any disadvantages? Yeah. See yeah, there sure are. I can completely kill the mood of a good song. <laughs> yeah. If a band plays well live together and they don't want to necessarily have their song remixed or whatever straight away, then, you know, forcing them to adhere to a tempo or even multiple tempos yeah, it's just like 
they stop looking for that vibrational relationship with each other and start, mm. well, you know, the whole headspace of the recording is like, am I in time with the computer? Am I in time with the machine? And yeah, it can, uh, for inexperienced players, it's a nightmare. Um, it, it does, uh, not for them, but it does horrible things to their music. Like you can hear them that they're not listening to each other anymore. They're all listening to the you know, the computer <laughs> yeah, and yeah, the right. computer is not sensitive. The computer is mm. brutal. Yeah. Tick, so so tick, when you, tick. when you track a band, do you feed the click into the drummer's headphones only or is everybody going to get the click? Then? Yeah. Mostly I try and encourage that unless there are extended sections where the drums drop out, but usually then mm. I'll automate the click to appear in other people's headphones at the right time. Yeah. Um, and it's there. I always, it's always on one of the channels of our um, little multi-track headphone mixes, and everybody gets to do their own mix. So I don't know if people are listening to it or not, but I usually ask the band to try not to just mm. listen to the drums and yeah. uh, let the drummer worry about that, and you, the rest of the band, just play to the drummer. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Cool. What are your tips and tricks for choosing the right microphones for, you know, a new signal, let's say. Somebody comes in with an amp cabinet or something that you haven't recorded before. What's, what's on your mind when you choose the right suiting microphone, the, the right fit for yeah, your sound? Well, um, being, <laughs> being present is the biggest part of it for me. Um, Don't do what you did yesterday because it worked. You know, like everything is different. It's a new day. It's a new vibration. So there are definitely factors that I'll take into account. One of them is like what I feel like at the time. That's a big one. Um, reference tracks are really great. Like if somebody's given mm. me a reference track to listen to where they're like, you know, benchmark, this is the kind of sound we'd like to head towards, that can help me make my choices as well because I know what's going to make them happy coming out of speakers at the other end. Um, I've got my favourites for different reasons um, and I can elaborate on that if you want, maybe after this, but they don't work for everybody. You know, they work mm. for me when I'm playing guitar through my amp, I know what I like on it, but use put the same guitar and the same amp and the same mic in someone else's hands and it sounds rubbish, you know. It's like everybody's individual. So, yeah, probably the first thing I do is ask them for reference tones so I can see what they're aiming for and then I can listen to them playing their instrument and see how close it is to the reference tone. And if it's really close, then I don't need to change shit and I'll look for something really neutral and natural. Um that would more than likely be a mic that doesn't have a lot of character, you know? Mm, I see. Something more transparent and clean. Something pretty transparent. It's not going to hype yeah, it up yeah. or dull it down mm. or change the frequency response much. Um, yeah. The other thing that I love thinking through uh, is something that I read in um, Mixing With Your Mind, a book. Who wrote that? Stavros? Yes, Michael Stavro, yeah. who actually lives up in the hills from where I live, yeah, just around so, the corner. I've met him a few times. Yeah, so I'll put the link to his book in the show notes. So, um, yeah, so it's uh, warmly recommended. I, I agree. It's mm. a it's a cool book full of. It doesn't really have any recommendations on which mics to use or where to put them. It really encourages you to think about what you're doing, and yep. you know, it's part of that presence thing. But something that he said in that book was that microphones kind of have on a sonic level a hardness factor and a softness factor some mics sound a bit soft and spongy some mics sound more brittle and and hard so in his mind he has a bit of a catalog of the hardness rating of his mics from one to ten and then when he listens to a source sound he'll rate it from one to ten and pick the opposite microphone To balance it out. So yes. if it's a really soft and spongy sounding conga drum with dull skins that maybe been covered in mold because it hasn't stopped raining for five months or whatever, <laughs> he'll pick a mic that has a really nice hard front end on it to bring out the detail. Yes. He wouldn't typically mm. pair a hard mic with a hard sound source. So if you're listening to guitar yeah. amps, you know, if a guitarist has a real pingy, bridge pickup, treble wound up, 
Fender twangy sort of sound, you know, a nice soft vintage ribbon is going to capture that and smooth out that harsh top end and yes. um, so make it the, easier the to catch. That... So, yeah, constant. Mm. I, I think about that every time I pick a mic. Yeah, yeah. I also um, so opposites attract in, in opposites some ways. attract. So would, yeah, so you don't want to pair, let's say, a, a bright and thin sounding voice with a bright microphone. Not unless you in want it case, more bright. <laughs> well, yeah. Again, of the sibilance would be out of control yeah. and unmanageable. You know? Again, there's no mm. rules, yeah, and you know, by any mm. means necessary. But if you only have yeah. three mics, just figure out which is the softest, which is the hardest, and you know, you can experiment yeah. with um, swapping them to the opposites. Mm -hmm. Good. And um, when you track bands, um, have you got any, um, let's say, personal workflows with your gain staging? Do, do you apply the same methods of gain staging every single time? Or, you know, what, what do you go by when you decide to turn, record something a bit hotter or a bit, bit more conservative? Mm. Yeah, you know, that, that changes a lot for me as well. I don't, I think in the, in the 25 years of making records, I really haven't settled on a set of things that um that i lean on a lot like for me it's just this okay. ever evolving process of flow including my gain staging but um my first real studio was the tanuki lounge in west end and i worked there for about 17 years um one of the main problems with that space and look i'm sure a lot of people can relate if especially people who only have one room just say you're micing up a kit you can't hear it um when you're in the same room even if you have headphones on even if you have noise cancelling headphones on you can't hear what you're recording because the source sound is loud and mm -hmm. i had that problem at my studio i did have two rooms but it wasn't soundproof between them so i couldn't really use my monitors to um tune up a drum sound for a recording so i just look at the meters and i would imagine what the mic is seeing and how bright or dull it might be because of where i've put it knowing that like the center of a guitar speaker cone is bright the edge is dull um mic a snare drum high it's going to be duller than if you mic it low and catch some of the wires underneath um all of these things just kind of having a calculated guess and just referencing a quick test recording before committing. So, you know, I, I would always just look at the meters and get a, a medium, uh, you know, a medium high level because everybody gets carried away when they track two and suddenly everything's mm. going red. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, when people but, get excited, but, they get loud. Yeah, yeah but um, in, mm. in my explorations over the last couple of years, it seems to me... And I have no real physical um, knowledge of of this or any evidence to back it up, but I um, I've been tracking through a console recently. I have a twenty four channel APB Dynasonic Spectra console, which is a it's, it's a live desk, but it has really nice preamps and EQ. And one of the things I love is just an analog high pass on on every channel. Mm. It's um yeah, I wouldn't mind saying a couple of things about that. I think that's revolutionized things for me in the digital world a lot. But I went, I've been through a stage of tracking things actually pretty quiet. So, you know, like even down around minus 25, minus 20 dB maximum um, into, the, into the door. And, you know, I grew up recording on tape. So uh, that was the opposite. You really want to push level as warm as you comfortably can onto tape to get away from the inherent noise floor, yeah. um, which doesn't exist in digital. So that prerequisite is not part of the, of the workflow that we have to deal with. Um, and, and I tracked a couple of things quiet after I got sent some sessions to mix by somebody else and now I recorded very quiet. In fact, at times so quiet that it scared me, but after I'd gained it up with, my plugins and um, various uh, mix things, the mix sounded absolutely huge. And it sounded mm. more, it had more depth, it had more width, and it seemed to have more detail. And so I experimented tracking oh. a bunch of sessions, you know, like easily 10 dB quieter than I normally would, and then just gain staging it back up when I'm mixing in the box in my door. 
and loving it, absolutely loving um, the headroom in the mix and pulling a massive sounding mix that was still 8 dB away from clipping on the master and loads of room for the mastering engineer to take it even further. And yeah, I just, it, it had me wondering about the architecture of the virtual buses and the, the structure mm. of the framework. And I, I don't know, I, I feel like they just handle less volume. They like it. I, I think they like it more. I think the, the architecture doesn't handle volume in the same way. Oh, look, um, if you want to, after the interview, I'm, I'm happy to uh, talk really technical stuff with you because when it comes to the inner workings of Pro Tools, uh, I've got direct wires to the Avid engineers. I, I, know, I ask a lot of questions that the uh, operating manual doesn't answer. And uh, the, the you know, one thing I wish I could really testing. do on You and now we need, to, <laughs> we need to sit down over a couple of beers yeah. one evening and just uh, start playing, but no, keep going. So oh, there's actually one thing that I'd really love to yeah. be able to do on Pro Tools. You know, on your um, okay. edit window view, you can choose the size of any window, but on your yeah. mix window view, you can't. <laughs> all the channels are either narrow or they're wide. I'd love to be able oh, yeah. to make my buses twice the width of my channels. That would be so awesome. <laughs> mm. Just so you can find them with your eyes really quickly. I may use some color coding mm. and stuff, but it'd be great to have the auxiliaries and all your returns, double width and all of your things that are feeding it. You know, you could just make them smaller, get them out Change of the way. The anyway. Like Maybe after the interview, I might have you know a proposal, an idea of of uh, different workflows that might lead to an interesting outcome. Mm. But okay, always open to um, these things. Uh, don't get me started with you know with uh, <laughs> Pro Tools stuff. We'll be interested, but people will start tuning out. They'll be like, "Whatever, let's, boys." <laughs> let's get back to you and your recording workflows. Mm. Um, there are different trains of thoughts about processing on the way into Pro Tools or on the way out. Mm. And, you know, there's obviously the option to, you've got a console there, you can EQ on the way to Pro Tools, mm -hmm. and maybe you have a few processors in the, that you could patch in. I do, yep. But, or you could leave your options open and do it in the mix. Well, what is your take on this? Well, what, what do you prefer? Look, I think if you're, if you're not sure and you're, um, if, if you can't hear what you're recording really well. So if you're working in the same room, uh, if you're only just working in one room, um, you have to be careful because you can't really hear the processing that you're doing. But if you have a nice, you know, isolated space from your source and you can use front-end gear, be it latency-free plugs on the way through or any outboard gear, you create a sound you like, you just record it, move on. Mm. It saves a lot of time. So I commit a lot now. I use the Universal Audio console um, and I got plugins on almost everything on the way in. Um, not a lot of additive EQ. I definitely use a bit of subtractive EQ on the way in. Um, okay. Mm. And I use coloration. I use a lot of tape plugins on the way in i use some gain um just some limiters and some yep just all gentle stuff just to help um yeah just help make the recording sound better straight away as soon as you hit play um i've also found that since leaning into that i don't have a lot to do when it comes time to mix the records so the clients are usually mm. pretty happy because you know at the end of the tracking day with a couple of quick plugins thrown up into the session, it's already sounding really good. And yeah, my workflow around that is that taking, I take more time to set up and work on the sounds that we are creating and then just record them. So yeah, these days I'm, I'm, I'm really into processing on the way in. I do a lot of it and I commit to it. Nice. Yeah. Nice. It takes takes experience and courage, of course. It does, but, but I wouldn't uh, do it if I was uncertain or I couldn't hear properly, yeah. you know? If I was yeah, yeah. in someone else's studio, I don't know how I'd feel about it. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, you know, it's just art. Just throw paint at the wall. Yeah. Just make cool shit. Yes. Get it done. Yeah. If you think it sounds better with the compressor on it, then record it. You know, you can't be right or cool. wrong. If you think it sounds better, you're allowed to think whatever you want, you know? This mm. is what I love about it. Mm, things can go right. wrong and it can sound awesome so yeah <laughs> but yeah if you if cool. you don't know what you're doing with compressors you can you can cook it <laughs> 
you can uh, you can wreck a perfectly good sound source. Yeah. Oh, it can be overcooked. Yeah. Exactly. Then you know when you record it and it's overcooked, then you can't unbake it anymore. It's, then you just bake it more. Done. That's my philosophy. Yeah. <laughs> Get the distortion <laughs> out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. That's one thing I learned once too, you know, if, if there's a certain weird effect, you can't leave anybody guessing whether it's a mistake or not. Yeah. So if it's if you want to break it, break it really, break really it, strongly. Yeah, break it proper. <laughs> make it a statement. <laughs> yeah, make it proper, exactly, yeah. yeah. Take it to town. Um, say, when you mix these days, you mentioned earlier that you mix in the box. Um, you've got this amazing console right in front of you, Um What are the pros and cons of mixing analog or digital in, in your eyes? Mm. Well, the short answer would be that on the console mixing outboard, even just analog summing with a bit of extra EQ, you know, recall is real tough. It's really hard and it's not absolute. And I find that most of the clients that I work with, um, they're not into um, not being able to review the mix. It, it, people like to mm. review the mix. That's part of the modern day workflow. And, you know, I'm in yeah. that category. I don't mind being able to recall a mix and have it be exactly the same because I know that when when I'm in the final stages of a mix, like 0.1 of a dB difference in a little frequency boost or cut can be the thing that makes all of the planets align and suddenly the whole thing is exactly where I want it. And on a on a desk with no recall it's impossible it is impossible yeah. to recreate <laughs> even the fader movements on a on a console you know unless you have automation recall like if it's if it's a millimeter out of alignment where it was before the the, the mix could sound quite different and that's just one of them yeah. and then you look at 24 mm. of them um so yeah probably the main that's um, a practical reason the practical reason is that people yep that I work with and me, I like recoil. It's handy to be able to mm. pull up a mix and make a little yeah. change and print it again and be confident. Um, that said, I also love, like recording through plugins or committing sounds to tape, I like the idea of just pulling a mix, printing it and moving on with your life. You know, mm. you don't have to go back. Everything doesn't have to be perfect. You know, life is a journey. Music's a journey. And I know that people yeah. spend a lot of money, so they want it to be how they want it, but do they even know how they want it? <laughs> you know, like this is another thing that comes up for me is like I, I've definitely worked with people or maybe watched other people pour resources over and over and over again into trying to perfect something rather than recording more things, you know. So I've seen people record the same song four or five times. And each time maybe yeah. cost them two, three, four, five thousand dollars. And they're 20, 20k deep on trying to get the perfect version of this song. And it's just like, you know how many songs you could record for that? You know, you sure this song is everything does you know, maybe there's more songs that you need to be recording. So yeah. Yeah, right. So What do you do when, when a client struggles to finish up? You know, I, I've experienced that myself when people just constantly second-guess themselves and therefore never manage to finish. Mm. Have you got any tips or tricks to convince people to draw a line, make their piece and move on? Um, look, it's really up to them. You know, mm. it's something that, you know, they have to be able to find that for themselves. But reassurance, you know, it goes a long way. If I truly think that something is fine and doesn't need to be changed, I generally, um, you know, won't do it and just be like, I'm not going to yeah. do it if, yeah. It, it's actually beautiful already. I don't think it's going to make much of a difference for the trouble that it's going to take. Yeah. Um, so that's something mm. that I think about mixing in the box is you do get that revision capability. Um, on mixing out of the box, again, this isn't really verified and I'm not a student of this. Um, you know, I'm, I don't have the physics behind this, but something that I do know is that when I mix out of the box, um, it is a momentary flow and there is a special kind of magic in that. It's a now or never kind of situation. And the mix itself becomes a performance like a musician and you have to stay with the mix and move things around and send stuff 
two effects at the right times or whatever it is, whichever kind of mix you're making. But even on a static mix, right, we're using what I've done here in my studio with outboard, just these simple four-band semi-parametric, um, the two mid-bands are fully parametric and the high and low is just shelf on my four-band console EQ. But something that I've noticed is that just say here's a comparison. In your door, you've got a, a, a source material with lots of low end like a kick drum, pretty punchy, lots mm-hmm. of power in it. Pull up a pull tech EQ, like a beautiful emulation of a very powerful EQ. Select a powerful frequency like 60 or 80 hertz. Go on, give it 24 dB of gain. And the internal bus will distort, your master will distort, and it'll just sound bloody rubbish, right? And you're not going to – it's just going to like ruin that particular sound. Route the kick drum out to your mixing desk – choose the same frequency, give it half as much gain, and your fucking speakers will pop out. So <laughs> there's like okay. there is this sense of drama in a console, in a live analog mix, which I think gives the mix like a lot more front to back depth. Like you can have things come out to the point where you might actually be about to blow up your amplifier. And now I don't think that's going to happen in the box. You know, you have this glass ceiling in the in the structure of Pro Tools where it, it can't go louder than that channel was designed to go, and it's going to sound mm. rubbish. But the volume isn't actually going to increase. And uh, yeah, yeah, that's one of the main differences on the board is that you get this real sense of drama um, where yeah, the the when you start pushing things like they get dangerous. Yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> it's super cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The other thing I love about mixing on the board is the way that you can pan. So if I had a guitar solo that I wanted to pan around, I wouldn't send it to one mono channel and and move the pan pot around. I'd actually send it to a pair of channels, exactly the same thing. So you just have dual mono, one pan left, one pan right. And you 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 know, move the faders up and down and the kind of panning mm. that you get, yeah, it sounds sounds old school to me. It sounds fully psychedelic <laughs> because nice, it's it's nice. volume-based as well. Like suddenly they can both be loud and, yeah, the thing moves around yeah. like crazy. So, yeah, all of that stuff's fun. But, yeah, we can also do that um, mixing in the box using a console as a tool. Like I can still do that and I can record a panning structure like that for a solo and I do route a lot of things out through my console inserts, some of my analog gear and outboard effects. I definitely um, reprocess things that are already recorded through some of my signal chains, whether it's to get a bit of, you know, analog compression and uh, yeah, valve mm. saturation, whatever it is that you're looking for. It's fun to do. Nice. That, that way you basically get the best out of both worlds. Yeah. The recordability of digital and, you know, the, the sense and feel and... Yep. Uh, yeah, the tangibility, you know, it the can ability be compli- to touch things. and It can be know, a from, complicated from workflow, domain, yeah. for mm. sure. Mm. Um, yeah. This, well, yeah, in the world of delay compensation and latency, I've often found that rerouting things, sometimes they're in phase and sometimes they're not, and I can't quite figure out when... <laughs> When uh, when it works and when it doesn't, but it's always worth a shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, gee. Look, um, I think uh, I can offer a technical perspective to all the creative things you just mentioned mm. uh, with, you know, summing buses and Pro Tools and all of this, but I'll leave that for another day. Sounds I think. good. But uh, I'd like to invite everybody, you and the listeners, you know, to approach me and, and ask me questions if you uh, if you want to know about the inner workings of Pro Tools or analog content. Anyway, that's another story. Um, what is your prediction for the next about five or ten years of, of uh, music industry? You know, we're just coming out of the COVID times, live gigs are happening again. Where is the industry hap- uh, heading to? You know, what things are working, what things will change? If you if you if I ask you to, to look into your crystal ball for the next five to, to ten years, hmm. what do you see on the horizon? You know, strangely, it's um, not something that I think about. Um, I I'm aware that 
for myself to be truly good at something, I had to sharpen the tip of the spear and stop trying to do everything. So I have really learned to hone my daily concentration and my even my hobby mentality, the things that I'm interested in. Most of them are based around recording music and being in here. And outside these walls, I don't really have much of a perspective on what works and what doesn't. Um, and it's not that I don't care about it or I don't think about it on the level of curiosity, but I'm not a very good person to ever give advice on that. You know, people often say, oh, now that we've got this, what would be the best way to release it? And I'm like, that's not my mm. world. I don't know. Um, and in many ways, I don't care. That's not what I can't care about that and do this, you know, like I just, I just want to do this. So, you know, I don't have much of a perspective on what's going to change. Um, being a performer and, and having spent a lot of time on the road, you know, I think that live music, it's never going to go anywhere. There's never going to be an, um, an end to new bands forming and new music being created. So we all have that to look forward to. You know, there's going to be a lot of new content. I think the ways in which we consume and digest and enjoy music are always going to change. But something that you know, even looking back over the, the changes that have happened in the last 15 or 20 years, um, something that I um, have a strong, well, I, I just feel a response to the fact that um, with the changing medium of music consumption going from physical format to online content and the great loss, mysterious loss of income for a lot of artists, <laughs> mm. I, I think that in some ways that's real and in other ways it's not that real because I don't know many artists in my life that ever made actually any money from selling records. Like there's a few, but most people didn't make a lot. The area that I see it having the greatest impact is a lot of young independent bands were able to um, make up the income on a tour from selling merchandise. So there's definitely some creative thought to be done in that realm because, you know, cars don't even have CD players anymore. I don't have a CD player in my house. So there's that point of sale um, product that we had a pretty good markup on, you know, CDs. They cost a lot to record an album, but to manufacture the CD is two bucks. Yeah. And you could sell it for it 20 cheap. or $30 back in the day. And bands were selling 80 40, 80, 100, 200 of these at a show. And that's how a lot of tours got funded. It wasn't necessarily on the performance fees. Um, but I do think we've just come full circle in a lot of ways back to before all of that, where if you want to make a living as a musician, guess what? You got to be good. You got to have <laughs> charisma. You got to be able to put on a good show. Yeah. You got to have people come through the door and pay and want to come back and do it again. And, you know, mm. I think that with all of the studio wizardry that was invented, I think there was certainly a, a decade or more of bands that sounded better than they played. And, um, <laughs> you know, I look forward to the fact that um, there's a lot uh, – the, the ways of being a professional musician, you know, that it's constantly evolving. We're constantly being challenged by things and we have to be very, very adaptable. And I think it's just exciting that still the most exciting and guaranteed way to be able to make a living is, you know, knowing how to put on a good show, mm. like the 20s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I also, uh, I was just thinking something else about um, – you know, Spotify and the other the other online mediums, it the royalties are obscene, you know, obscenely low, and there's definitely work to be done pushing back against that. But something that it has allowed, you know, I grew up before um, digital technology. I was, um, you know, I was well and truly out of high school before I had a um, email address. I was 25 or 26 before I got a mobile, and it certainly didn't have a camera in it. <laughs> wasn't connected to the internet and what we you know we I, I was touring with the band George and we were self-managed and we were advancing our tours with books of postage stamps you know like everything was 
was, um, you know, typed out correspondence, printed correspondence back in the day. It was, it was hectic. And so many other people were involved in every step of what we were doing and people pulling money out everywhere. And what we all really longed for was direct access to our fans and being able to have a portal where people that liked our music could find it and we could find them. And I really think that the Spotify platform, for all of its shortcomings, it does allow a lot of people to find your music very easily. And I think that from an independent DIY level, if you have a good website and you have your own, um, you know, cottage commerce set up and sorted and streamlined as a band, then people can find your stuff pretty easily these days. And I'm for that. You know, I think that's a really positive thing is um, they don't have to go through all the, you know, the, the labels and challenges and the hurdles if they want to find your music. They just type it in. There it is. Go to your website. There you go. You connect it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But it's what you do so with that then. Pros that, and cons. You know, I think there's yeah. still a lot of creative thought about how to manage that, what to do with it. Yeah. Mm. And what's going to become so that, that new point of sale item where you can sell it directly to your fans and we're going to have to get creative. But, um, yeah, there's, there's something there. Mm. to look for well said mm. thank you Paulie say um, if one of the listeners now would like to reach out to you or visit your studio stop by for a coffee or, or book you know a week or two of studio time where would they find you online well I um, the best place to go first would be our studio um, website or Instagram and that is Yama Nui um, and that's Y-A-M-A hyphen in ui and the website's just com and the instagram's just recording studio i think yamanui um that's the best place to keep an eye on basically what i've been doing and a good place to reach out first um i don't personally use social media very much i've got a profile on instagram but it's been almost three years since i posted anything on it i just find that i'm a little bit too busy doing the stuff that I love to post about doing the stuff that I love. So fair enough. Um, yeah, it's I'm not very engaged on any of those platforms on a personal level. I prefer to be here in the studio with my people and um, okay. yeah, generating content. But it all comes out through the Yamanui portal. So that's probably the best way Excellent. to reach out. Um, you could also email me directly, uh, but mm -hmm. um, that comes with a little word of warning could be a while till i get back to you <laughs> because honestly i'm here like 10 hours most days and i don't do much admin outside that yeah mm, a couple of days a month if that so the website But, um, is probably yeah, one my of the emails, best ways to get in contact my email is mm. just paulie b p-a-u-l-i-e-b at me.com I put all of those links into the show notes. So if you want to reach out to Paulie, just uh, finish the episode, scroll down to the show notes, click the link, and then you have your direct wire to reach out to Paulie. Mm -hmm. Well, look, I think what you shared with us today is nothing short of spectacular. The, the way you connect to music is on a, such an experienced, deep emotional level. And you, you found these amazing words to actually phrase that, mm. that thank you, things brother. that I can't grab. Mm. <laughs> and, and you put this in amazing words. So thank you so much for sharing. I really appreciate that. Thank you for taking the time to hear my perspective on things. My pleasure. And uh, Paulie, I would really like to one day catch up in person. We probably have a lot more to talk about at some stage. Let's do it. Thank you so much. This was Paulie B from the Sunshine Coast on the Production Talk podcast. I think this was a phenomenal interview and I love your approach to music and life, Paulie. Uh, I can really sense how you are not just a technician behind the console, but you are the heart and the soul of the music that comes out of your studio and the way you interact with people. It just connects so much with the way I like to, to produce music as well. It's all right down my alley and it really resonates with the way I approach life and music production in particular. So it's quite amazing that uh, we haven't connected earlier. 
So if you are in the Sunshine Coast or anywhere nearby and you ever need any help with music production, I warmly recommend reaching out to Paulie B. If you can get a booking with him, he's a busy man, uh, and work with him on your music, I'm sure you will be blown away by what he can do for you. I've listened to many of your productions, Paulie, and I have the utmost respect for you for your skills. If you enjoyed this interview today, please subscribe in your podcast application and also recommend this podcast episode to all your friends. And if you hated it, recommend this episode to all your enemies. And this is all for today. I hope you had a great time. I'll speak to you again next week. Bye for now.